Hello, fellow innovators. This is Patrick Emmons. And this is Shelley Nelson. Welcome to the Innovation and Digital Enterprise Podcast, where we interview successful visionaries and leaders, giving you an insight into how they drive and support innovation within their organizations. Today, we're very excited to have Sean O'Kelly with us. I met Sean about two years ago through a mutual connection, and, and when we met, he was about a year into being the Chief Information Officer for the state of Illinois, focusing specifically in the Department of Financial and Professional Regulation. Before that, Sean had been at a wide range of organizations, but his background leans more towards the financial and consulting. Shelly and I are both really excited about having you on today, Sean. Good morning. Thank you for having me. So, Sean, just to begin, would you mind digging into what your role was at the state of Illinois? Sure. So, in my role as chief information officer, I was responsible for uh, applications, infrastructure, operations, security, compliance for that particular department. Uh, the way the state is organized, uh, it's very similar to the federal government. So you have um, information leaders uh, that oversee each department, and then you report up to the overall state CIO uh, who's appointed by the governor. So that was my role. Uh, and in so financial and professional regulation um, kind of did two unrelated things. And each state packages departments differently. So th- this is... Um, just the way the state of Illinois decided to do it at some point in the past. But for financial regulation, we were responsible, the department was responsible for regulating all banks, credit unions, currency exchanges, money transmitters, title insurance, consumer credit outfits in the state, payday lenders, that sort of thing. And from an IT perspective, we had to essentially support a uh, B2B interaction there. Uh, The state had uh, would charter or license those institutions to operate in the state. And then th- there were examiners that that would go around periodically and, and perform audits of those, those institutions. So we had to support a B2B interaction there. Uh, professional regulation was completely different. It's the regulation of, of and licensing of all professionals, uh, professional licenses in the state. So there's something like 250 or 260 different license types. But in essence, it's all Doctors, nurses, accountants, engineers, real estate agents, roofers, cosmetologists, uh, you, you can, it goes on for, for quite some time, dentists. Uh, so from an IT perspective, we had to support a, a B2C uh, interaction there. And we were one of, the, one of the few agencies in the state that didn't really run off of, of tax revenue. It, it ran off of the license fees that were collected. So IT was responsible for somewhere in the range of 70 to 80% of, of all the revenue coming in uh, to, to ensure that that happened smoothly. I mean, I came in, my background coming into, the, into this role, I grew up in kind of classic consulting, Accenture, Deloitte, and then did quite a bit of work as a senior enterprise architect and, and as well as uh, a leader in, in IT operations. But the last several years of my career, I spent really focusing on customer experience before even joining the state. And what I found in joining government is there was such a hunger, a demand, I should say, for better participation between those regulated entities and the government, uh, better interaction. People in a, in a B2C scenario, people wanted a better experience. They wanted better, more convenient interaction. And then in the B2B scenarios, they, they, it was largely about better data exchange, better content exchange. 
And so, but in either case, what you're doing is you're, you're trying to drive a better, more frictionless interaction between those parties. And that to me was really front and center when I took the role and realized that there's just such a hunger for how do we, it's not that regulated entities or individuals didn't want to be regulated. I think generally people, at least from what I saw, people generally understood the need for reasonable oversight, but it was like, how do we make those interactions better? So that's interesting. So on the B2B side, it would seem with that data exchange, it's it's not that they wanted it regulated. It's just the intrusion of having to go through an audit. The things that would slow down business, be a cost, you know, not a value. And more on the B2B side, the user experience, because you're dealing with people. And I think we've all had to deal with certain elements of various governments where the website doesn't do what it's supposed to do, or, you know, even more so in the three-dimensional form, nobody really enjoys the DMV. Uh, So I guess when you get into that modernization, and I think your words are citizen experience, you know, and modernization, what is it that you're seeing that government is realizing? So what we've talked about in the past, you know, government doesn't want to be big brother, and, but it does have a part to play. And, and specifically with the arena that you're in, the financial side, it, it's just a critical element. Uh, you know, you know, Adam Smith aside, right? There is a role for government in that. Anybody who's old enough to live through 2000 will testify to that fact. So what are some of the things that you saw being done and, and where do you see it going? That's a great question. So let's start by maybe just start by defining the citizen experience or what I what I call a citizen experience, which is really just an extension of the customer experience that you might talk about in the private sector. So when you talk about innovation, and in my mind, innovation comes from two basic places. You're either innovating uh, what you're delivering or you're innovating in the way you deliver it, or maybe some combination of the two. Oftentimes, innovation is, I would say, I don't have any numbers on this, but I would say that it's uh, a little more heavily swayed toward how you deliver something rather than what is being delivered. So for instance, you take Netflix, you know, Netflix innovated in how content and movies and, and shows are delivered, but not necessarily the fact that we still watch shows. And so when we talk about the customer experience or the citizen experience, it really is just in the end, in my mind, about process and data. Those are the two biggest things, followed by security and trust and transparency. Those things have to be there too, but it is about process and data in the end. And so think about this. We're from Chicago, right? I'm born and raised in this city. And so the city of Chicago has the the parking mobile app that people use. I I use it. Probably uh, uh, you use it too, I would imagine. So People love that because what what you used to have to do when you parked on the street is you had to feed a meter and you'd walk away and at some point it would expire and you'd have to go back to your car, but that's really inconvenient. And maybe you got lucky and didn't get a ticket, but but you could have if it expired and, and you didn't feed the meter. So now what you can do with the mobile app is you can just simply hook it to your credit card, uh, pay, and there is still a timer on it, but but you can renew it from the mobile app. You don't have to go back to your vehicle. To me, that's a, such a much better experience. Um, and people, at least amongst my circle of folks, they people generally really like that. Much, much better way to do it. 
So I think the experience people have with government, unfortunately, that that happens in pockets um, where those those experiences are really innovated. So we, we, you know, the city of Chicago didn't change what was being done. You still have to pay to park on the street. They're just they changed in the uh, you know the way that it was delivered. But unfortunately, I think for a lot of us, we still have the experience where you have to go somewhere, um, probably go to a facility, probably talk to a person, probably fill out lots of forms, probably have to provide lots of supporting documentation, depending on what you're doing. And so the question is, is how do we get from that place to something that feels a lot more modern? And from, you know, from what I've seen, it's not that people don't want to comply with government activity or don't see the value in having some oversight in terms of in terms of what they're doing but people are have a lot of pressures put on them they have a lot of tugs at their time and so the question is is how do we make those things faster how do we make them more convenient how do we improve that experience so that getting people to uh, interact with government is 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 more frictionless let's put it that way um, and so when I think about uh, modernizing government, um, it, it has to start with not from the technology perspective, not the back end, not what are we going to do with our data center or what are we going to do with our network or what, you know, what it's not about what service bus are you going to use and that sort of thing. I, I think those are the enablers of really what the citizen experience uh, you're trying to drive is. And so I think it really needs to start with a real close examination of, you know, what I call the citizen journey. And there might be multiple journeys. Uh, In fact, I I know there are multiple journeys. So there really needs to be a real deep understanding of what that is in order to then determine what the technology should be to facilitate those things. If you look at, uh, take a very specific example, Um, the state of Illinois just recently passed uh, legislation uh, f- for recreational use ca- cannabis. So my department, part of what we did was we we regulated the, we licensed the dispensaries and the people that worked in those dispensaries. So the state of Illinois has had medical uh, medical use marijuana for years, and so we were already in that business of of licensing those facilities and those individuals. But with uh, recreational use getting passed, that's going to be a separate license and a separate process to achieve those licenses. Some facilities will be dual use. Some will be standalone recreational use. Um, so the question is, is how do we, how do we improve that experience? It's a signature piece of legislation. It's something I think a lot of people are, are interested in and, and excited about, but the technology that, that currently exists is fairly old technology. So you have a lot of technical debt behind the scenes. You have a lot of risks that are that are growing there. And so in order to modernize, um, or the reason to modernize is not just because uh, the technology is getting old, that's, that's a part of it, but as you have these new pieces of legislation and these new, these new programs that you want to enable, the newer technology is going to is going to better position the government to enable those things and and to create those ultimately to create those better experiences that hopefully are are smoother for citizens. So you you touched on the cannabis industry as somebody who works downtown. I got to tell you, I'm really excited that they're finally taxing for something that's widely been going on for a long time. 
I used to count how many times I smelled pot just walking into work and wondering, why are we not taxing for this? So I'm excited that we're going to be driving some revenue through that. I guess some of the challenges that I would suspect are keeping up with the Joneses and the startup speed that everybody admires. You know, you guys have real risks. So there's real challenges there. How do you think government is moving in a way that they can support that kind of structure and, and that kind of sensitive data? And the way I look at it is I assume that the breach is going to happen. I think we can all accept the fact that the new reality is your data is going to get taken. I don't see a way, unless you are completely off the grid, that your data is not going to get stolen. But that's not going to stop people from suing or pursuing legal ramifications for a government breach, right? So from your experience, you look at what was going on with the state and other government organizations. Are they capable of making that switch? Are they are they going to be able to do that? A lot of the focus over the last couple years, maybe even, even longer than that, uh, prior to me coming into government, was on security for the exact reasons that you that you mentioned and the government the government the at least from what i saw the 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 government the state is very good at security and and there was a lot of focus and investment in that area for exactly what you said i mean it, it, the government has to protect citizen information there's no question about that and a lot of that focus and attention has kind of led us to this point so what you're what in, in improving that security, once you get to that place, uh, which I think I think they're, the the government is at a good you know from what I saw was at a good you know place with with the way we 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 secured information. Um, there's always things that can be done. No organization is perfect. Um, breaches do happen, but in general, I the the government definitely focused a lot on on security. And there, look, there's statutory responsibility to protect information. It's not just just like there is for for corporations um, and and nonprofits, there the government has has statutory responsibility to protect information. I think my point here is that that now that we're at that place where, generally speaking, the information is protected, the question is how do we turn that attention to better experiences? This is true for any older organization. What I'm about to say, um, some of my prior experiences with with older, very very older banks and financial institutions, um, you, it's not uncommon to go into an organization and see a mainframe that, that's still being run and, and actively being used. And that's true at the state too. And look, mainframes at their, in their fundamental, um, I don't want to spend too much time picking on mainframes, but I'll spend just a moment on it. The fundamentally, they're very good at just at, at storing and capturing information. I mean, they're, they're just, that's bread and butter IT going back to the seventies. But the problem is, is that if you want to create modern experiences, you really have to build, um, sort of build quite a bit of custom um, capabilities in order to to connect those mainframes to to modern front ends. Um, so if you need to serve up data at a certain point in a process, um, if you need to capture data at a certain point in the process, if you need to run, you know, run calculations. You have to build, um, as, as I'm sure you're aware and, and your audience is aware, I mean, you have to build custom services, IT services and custom uh, APIs to connect the data in that, in, in that mainframe to your front end. That is a lot of work. That's a heavy, heavy lift. So while you may hear some folks that say, well, you know, for, for any older organization that would say, we're running these older mainframes, it's going to be really hard to get off of those. We need to figure out a way to, to work with them. That might be true. But the amount of work that you have to put in to get that data connected to modern front ends, 
um, and modern modern enterprise tools is significant. And so you do have to kind of balance whether or not it makes sense to just say, okay, let, let's actually figure out how to come off of those mainframes and, and maybe get into more modern databases. But that the, the, the way that you're serving up your process and your data in a secure way, that is fundamentally the, the citizen experience um, core to it. So here's another good example. And this, is, this goes back to that cannabis. When we talk about creating journeys, of what you might, even in the private sector, when you talk about taking a customer through a certain journey, let's say it's a sales journey of some kind, or even a service journey, you want to update your address with your insurance carrier. Let's just say that. Um, There's a journey associated with that. And you can map that out and you can ensure that, that that's a solid experience for those customers. But when you aggregate that up into not just one organization, but now any number of, of regulated entities in a certain space. And then you've got the government that's responsible for oversight of all of those entities. The way the, the law gets written and the way, the way that regulation occurs, may you may end up having actual regulation that, um, that touches multiple departments along the way. So there's not really a very great analog for how you have multiple entities that have to go through a cross journey across multiple departments of the government. That's why we all notice and feel that sort of siloed experience because you go to department A and maybe they're responsible for manufacturing type activities and you have to get a license to operate as a manufacturer of some kind. You go to department B and and they they might oversee uh, sales type activities or, or, or distribution type activities. Um, and then you might go have to even go to a third department to get uh, consumption type regulation. So c- cannabis, again, is a great example. You have the Department of Agriculture that you have to get a license for and provides enforcement for the growers, farmers, really, and the suppliers of the seeds. So that's Department A that you might have to go to. If you're also going to run a dispensary, then you have to come to financial and professional regulation to get a, essentially a distribution license. Um, and then there's oversight there. Um, and then finally, the Department of Public Health, uh, at least in the case of medical cannabis, oversees, uh, actually issues issues permits or licenses to consumers of medical cannabis, patients, because what, what they want to do is provide oversight to make sure that folks are not going to multiple providers and getting more cannabis than maybe they were prescribed. So there's good reasons for those things. I'm not saying there isn't, um, but the truth is, is that you have this whole delivery chain of of regulatory activity, and you could even map out that journey, and that's a that's a great start. But getting those departments to play well together and to interact and to have the right technology in place to facilitate that journey, I think, is the next step as we look sort of beyond security and trust and you know what what you had asked earlier. I hope that makes sense. Yeah, no, that's so interesting, Sean. And as you were talking about um, the culture, I mean, that seems like a huge cultural shift. And, you know, just knowing your background, I was really impressed to hear that um, you were at the state, given your background at Deloitte and your own consulting and technology. Um, Is that what they're looking to do now is bring in people with a unique set of experiences, bring that innovation in? 
Um, have you seen a shift in the two and a half years you've been there? So in, in the time that I was there, there was definitely that shift. There was a lot of, of push to do that. And so, you know, again, just to use my experience as an example, the day I walked in the door in April of 2017, if you were applying for a medical license to be a doctor in Illinois, you had to print out a piece of paper, go to the website, download a PDF, print it out, handwrite it out, mail it in with a check. In the time that I was there, we put that, that functionality online. And so there was a push to do those things. And I certainly pushed to do those things. I think the challenge going forward, I, I do think the government is going to have to, in my view, continue to look for folks that can help do that. Because that that is the the direction that I think citizens want. I think it's the direction that businesses do want. They want that less frictionless ex, or, or more frictionless experience. I think we went from being fully on paper for professional licenses the day I walked in the door to 85% or not, somewhere between 85 and 90% of all applications now for, for new professional licenses in Illinois can be done online. And that reduced the amount of time that it took to get a professional license in Illinois by about, uh, I think we calculated somewhere around 20 to 25% of time. So if it used to take, and I don't know what the numbers were when we were doing it all by paper, but somewhere around uh, 12 weeks, you know, you can now, you can now get it in, a, in about you know, eight weeks, which better aligns Illinois with with the speed of other states. Now we did that on old on an older technology stack. I think part of what I was advocating for and pushing for was a, a larger technology plan to to improve the uh, technology stack and modernize so that we could uh, take that from eight weeks down to four weeks or two weeks or who knows even faster. But uh, getting it below where it's at right now, it's going to be difficult to do that on, on older technology. So the state really has, has difficult choices to make, uh, about where, you know, I, I think most citizens are fairly aware of, of the, you know, fiscal challenges this, the state has had. Um, so I'm speaking as a, as a citizen now. So the state has challenges around where to prioritize, you know, budgets and funding and those sorts of things. But hopefully, uh, Shelly, to your point, uh, I think I think they are going to have to look for leaders who can think about those journeys, think about those experiences, and then determine what that actually means for the technology. And they're going to have to make difficult choices about where to invest, you know, dollars at the state. But I think it does it does certainly start with thinking about how do we how do we better serve those citizens. And I'm also curious, Sean, what that experience was like coming out of the tech industry and and going into the state and, you know, what was that decision-making process like for you? Were you concerned about the shift and I guess um, maybe the innovation or the agility or that sort of thing? Absolutely. <laughs> All of it. I mean, you, you, you spend 20 years in the private sector and then you, you go into in government mid-career and you're, you're wondering how, how fast can you get things moving? How, how much can you actually get done in the time that you're there? Uh, certainly you're thinking those things. I can say this, you know, to be fair, there's obviously different incentives at play. So in the private sector, I don't want to oversimplify it, but in general, in the private sector, you're doing one of three things. Your activities are either are geared toward driving revenue, lowering or managing cost, 
or managing risk in my mind. That That's it. The, one or a combination of those three things are what you're doing. In government, there isn't a profit motive, obviously. So you kind of take that profit growth off the table. So you're really in the game of managing costs and managing risk. And so that is a huge shift in mindset, both in terms of coming into government, as well as having to adjust to the the realities of how that's different from the private sector. I hope that answers your question. Yeah, thank you. So what did lead you there? Obviously, you're a successful guy with a lot of options. I think when we spoke, there was a real passion for you to participate in the process. I think there were a couple motivations. It was a, a little bit of a different move. Um, maybe not a move that, that others might have made, but I think for me, I've always been passionate about solving problems. And I find myself just very, very excited about working with good people and solving problems. And while you can do that in a lot of places, it just felt like at this point, government needed some help. It needed renewal. I would encourage any American uh, or anybody to serve sometime in government. It could use it, particularly if, if you have a technology background, for sure. I, I had some other personal reasons too. My, uh, in terms of um, my leadership style, I tend to be very much believe in the servant leadership approach, and so I wanted to make sure that I was walking the walk. And uh, when I was younger in my life, you know, and I was applying for schools and and, and looking to go to college, you know, I I, I went to the U of I in Champaign, and my the state of Illinois, you know, helped with some grants to help me do those things. And I was always very grateful for that. So I thought this is a time to serve and maybe, you know, do my part and give back. So those were from a career perspective, why I wanted to to jump in and, and do my part, but also from a personal perspective. I think that's pretty interesting. The whole concept of encouraging people to participate in government I think that's great because I do think there's a profound lack of understanding of what the challenges are that government's faced with, how we as citizens could possibly make it possible for our government to be a better service to us. I think it's really inspiring to think that if we had more people participate in the process, it would create a stronger country overall by you know tearing down that wall between the citizen and government. Yeah, I mean, that's my point of view. I think everybody should spend some time in their careers in government. Whether it's elected office or not, I would encourage anyone to do that. Government needs uh, different perspectives. It needs constant renewal. And it needs, in my view, it needs um, good people who are just willing willing to serve for a little bit. Uh, it doesn't mean you have to spend the rest of your career there. But it does mean that, not to be corny, but if you you know believe in, as, as Lincoln said, you know, of uh, government of the people, by the people, for the people, I mean, you, you should be willing to participate for some point in your career. That's great. I hope some folks out there start checking out some of these jobs. Unfortunately, I didn't do that, and it made me really think about some gaps in experience. Some of the other speakers that we've had on talked about how creating stronger leadership capabilities is done through having a diverse set of experiences, not just in roles, but in in the organizations and the sizes uh, of different industries, you know, in, in many different ways. So pivoting a little bit to more of the nerdy topics, if you're okay with it. For example, blockchain and and some of those concepts and how you see them pertaining to government. I think a a lot of people hear AI and the government and are reminded of thought police and and mind control, you know, 1984, you know, 
So how does government leverage these things and where do you see it going? What are your thoughts around all that? Sure. So there are folks who, who are concerned about, you know, the thought police and, and, you know, government overstepping, you know, we certainly always have to watch for that as citizens. But I think the big thing is, is to make sure that the law is clearly defined. At least in my experience in government, I was, and other folks, we were reading the law and then applying that to the technology that we were looking to leverage. That's the way it should work, right? That's the way government should work. That includes the capture of data, the protecting and security around that data, and the sharing of that data and the analysis around that data. Those things, in my view, should be should be crystal clearly defined in the law. And then as government looks to leverage technology to participate in larger ecosystems, that will be hopefully more, you know, as clearly defined as possible. So there is an ambiguity there. In terms of how some of these emerging, you know, emerging technologies are going to, are going to be leveraged. I think a, a lot of that is still to be determined. The three that I think come into play the most are probably blockchain containers and, and AI. I'll talk a little bit uh, about containers and AI, but probably spend a little bit more time on blockchain. So in government, really the leveraging of blockchain comes down to kind of two things. It's going to be identity is the main probably use of blockchain in government and then followed by regulatory compliance. And so w- what does that mean? You can think of identity in its broadest sense. Anything that exists in the real world can be represented in the digital world with a blockchain identity. The difference between blockchain and the way we do identity today with like classic active directories and is that you can make that identity unique and and the, the cryptography around it prevents the copying of that identity. So if something is truly unique, in the real world, then it can be uniquely represented in the digital world without any fear that it, that, it, that you can make many copies of it. So for instance, you could take, look at a, at a dollar bill, a, a currency. The reason cryptocurrencies exist is, or part of the reason that they exist is because you can represent that dollar bill, which has a serial number on it, a unique serial number. So it's already has a unique identifier in the real world, but you can now create a representation of that in the digital world without any fear that that dollar bill could then become $10 bills or $100 bills. If that were the case, uh, you would lose balance as to, uh, you, you would lose the ability to track that original dollar bill and what it could become in the digital sphere. So that's true for anything of, call it anything of value. So now extend that to an individual. You could take, you could represent Sean O'Kelly with an identity in the digital world on the blockchain. And now I can interact with any of the digital interactions that I choose to conduct myself uh, in. I can interact in totally new and different ways. So whether it's going on to my bank and interacting or to my insurance company and interacting or to a retailer that I like to buy things from and interact, you can do that now with that digital identity. And one of the things that the hope is, is that that will eliminate the need for IDs and passwords because that you will already be recognized and verified on the blockchain. And so that includes interactions with government as we look to improve the citizen experience. If that's one more way 
that you can now interact with government and government can be certain that that is that person sitting on the other side of that screen is who they say they are. Now you can offer up more services to citizens without them having to actually go somewhere and present themselves in person and fill out forms and provide supporting documentation all in person. You can do it through a digital mechanism. So in my mind, the hope with something like blockchain is that it's going to help facilitate better experiences down the road. Those are really interesting things. There's a couple of organizations here in Chicago that I know are doing significant things with blockchain. Some you know, financial organizations that I think you and I are both familiar with. Is there an organization that's really starting to move on this, that's showing some real promise? Is there at the state or maybe some other level organization? So with regards to blockchain, the organizations uh, where I spend my time is in terms of um, standards and concepts and definitions is open source, Hyperledger, for sure. That's one of them. Um, I think Ethereum is also a place where you can go if you want to learn more as well. Uh, But I, I would recommend either of those two. In terms of governments themselves, I'm aware of some proofs of concept happening in certain pockets, but I'm not aware of anything sort of rolled out in mass at this point. I'm aware of even some internal pilots that are happening in, in places, but the technology is probably a little still, you know, a little too early to really roll it out in mass. But so to the citizen though, it's not going to feel a lot different. You're still going to go to a website and interact. The blockchain is going to be something that helps facilitate those interactions a little bit more in the background. Not too unlike uh, the early days of the internet when the the TCP IP protocol was was determined to sort of be the standard. I think that will be part of the role that the blockchain plays. That's awesome. Well, I think we could keep this going for another hour and a half. Maybe I can get you to come back another time if you're open to that. If you'll have me, I'd be happy to come back. Absolutely. Awesome. Awesome. Sean, do you mind sharing a way that listeners can connect with you if they're interested in learning more? Yeah, please find me on LinkedIn. I'm very active on LinkedIn. Uh, I think it's a great, great tool. So Sean T. O'Kelly, please connect. Well, Sean, I want to thank you again for taking the time to talk with us today. It really means a lot. Your experience is unique, and I really appreciate you sharing your thoughts and where you see things going. Thank you so much for for having me join you and Shelly. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Sean. We also want to thank our listeners. We really appreciate everyone taking the time to join us today. And if you'd like to receive new episodes as they're published, you can subscribe by visiting our website at dragonspears.com slash podcast, or find us on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode was sponsored by Dragon Spears and produced by Dante32.